0: I appreciate David and Cammie singing that song. Ha! It's a good one, isn't it? Man! The first time uh, Nevin and I heard that song, uh, I think the next day I took off into David's office. I said, hey man, have you heard this song? He hadn't been listening to Christian radio. He listens to country music and stuff like that. But anyway, we pulled it up on the computer and Boy, I love the song, and I thought, man, that's David, because I can't sing that high. He can, you know, I mean? but boy, that was awesome. And putting Cami in there, too, helped your looks and everything, right? <laughs> Amen. What a song. That's a great song. Today, we want to talk about preaching the Word and meeting needs. If you'll make your way to Acts chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. Ken Hemphill once said, I am convinced that as... We become so enamored with methodologies and models and marketing strategies that we become almost carnal in our thinking about how the church grows. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? But it's so true in our day. There's, we need another strategy or another program to facilitate growth. But this passage is a reminder of how the Lord Almighty grows the church. And a reminder of how he can take a crisis and turn it into a blessing. Much like the song you just heard. Now remember, the church is yet to extend outside of the borders of Jerusalem. It's interesting that a couple of chapters ago we saw how people were flooding from surrounding towns into Jerusalem. But the gospel has yet to go outside of the borders. In the next chapter, we're going to take care of that. God is going to take care of that very problem. So in Luke, he gives us a quick reminder that not everything going on in the early church was glorious and magnificent. Why? Because the church is made of clay. Church is made up of people. People have problems. So the church is going to have problems. And Luke, as a great historian, is not at all afraid to tell you the good and the ugly. He lets us know what's going on If you will remember, we were introduced in chapter 5 to the corruption and hypocrisy surrounding two people in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. We know they were well known, and yet both of them acted hypocritically, and because of it, they died. Uh, We may have had the tendency to romanticize the early church until you get to Acts 5. And then all of a sudden, you slam on the brakes, and you're thinking, wow, God is holy? It's threatening. It's life-threatening holiness. As a matter of fact, he can speak the word and you can die. And that's exactly what happens And we see people looking in from the outside of the church and they respected and admired the people, but they also had the attitude, we dare not join that group of people. Why? Because they have a serious God and they are very serious about serving their God. So at this point, in chapter 6, we have another crisis that centers around an administrative problem. And this particular problem was very serious and it threatened the unity of the church. Luke is a master in describing the problem that we have and how God works His will through a crisis in the church for His greater glory and the good of the church. We also find in this passage the prototype of the diaconate. Anybody have heard of that word before? The diaconate is the office of a deacon. Diakonos means Servant. And in chapter 6, you don't have the word deacon, but yet we do believe that this is no doubt the beginning of the office of a deacon. Now, back a little over a year ago, I was contacted by this church, and we began to talk through some things, and the committee uh, said to me, Pastor, we don't have any active deacons. And I said, what? You're a Southern Baptist church? And I was like, "Florida." I didn't know what to think. But the more I thought about it, I thought, hey, that's a good thing. How is a church so strong as this church? Uh, The main reason was because of your Sunday school program. Let's be honest. And you do have servants who are serving in that capacity whether you have the title or not. Otherwise, this church would not have been where it is today. And so, here's my opportunity as your pastor to show you from the Word of God what it means to be a deacon. How that facilitates church life. What a necessity it is to have them and how we should function As a church, and notice up front, God did this so that the Word of God would increase and so that the church would grow. So, the deacon body is a great thing, it's a glorious gift to the body of Christ when it is like it's supposed to be. Now, we also see the centrality of the Word of God in Christian ministry. Let's talk math for a few moments. In verse 1, we have multiplication. Notice what the text said, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. A little Greek lesson for you. Serve tables. And then uh, Luke says, verses serving the Word. Play on words. Serve tables. Serve the Word. Both of them are very important, right? Vitally important. It's it's interesting that he uses that language. Serve tables, serve the Word. We can't give ourselves to serve tables because we've got to serve the Word. So both of them are vitally important. Now look. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip and Frochorus and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And note verse 7. What a great summary. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. See the addition? See the multiplication? Increasing, multiplying. And so, the number of people were multiplying and the Word of God was multiplying. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. I love that. When a priest gets saved, that's a good thing, right? And a number of the priests were getting saved. And so, think about these numbers. We would say today that there was probably at this point in the life of the church some 15,000. If you take one man and a wife... You had 5,000, right? So if you have a man, a wife, and one child, you have as much as 15,000. So the church was growing. In chapter 6, Luke tells us that the church is continuing to grow. It was growing through the preaching of the Word and through the witnessing of the church. It's not real hard to figure out how God grows a church. Preaching of the Word and witnessing by the people. And that's all we see going on in Acts, right? Preaching of the word and witnessing of the church. I think Luke tells us this in order to communicate that these were good days. It would almost be like we were saying it here at FBCO. We were seeing people saved and they're added to the church. And man, we say, boy, these are good days, right? I mean, God is doing great things. And I think Luke is highlighting the fact that who doesn't get excited about people getting saved, right? Right? And people were getting saved. It was a good day. And I think Luke is communicating this. People were coming to Christ by the scores. There was incredible enthusiasm. There was joy among the Christ followers. It was thrilling days. And right in the middle of the thrilling days, Luke will be very blunt with us, there arose a murmuring. Hmm. Had to be First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, right? There arose a murmuring and a grumbling. The ESV says a complaint. The literal word is a murmur. This grumbling was the Hellenist against the Hebrews. Now, the Hellenists were Jewish, but they came out of the dispersion. They had been Hellenized. Y'all know what that means, right? They were sucked up in the Greek language and the Greek culture. They spoke Greek, but probably did not speak Hebrew or Aramaic. They had their own synagogues in Jerusalem. And then you had the Hebrews. Now, folks, these are the real... Palestinian Jews. They probably spoke Aramaic and also Hebrew. They worshipped from their perspective more purely than the Hellenists. As the church grew, this would have created linguistic and cultural barriers. Just imagine how this would have been facilitated. So even after the Hellenists came to faith in Christ, they would usually continue in their own synagogues. There was no doubt a sense of racial and religious superiority that the Palestinian Jews would have had over the Hellenistic Jews. In this text, the Bible says that the Hellenistic widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food and money. And in the end, or at the end of chapter 2 and chapter 4, we learn that the church is being so generous. Y'all remember that? Everybody gave and no one left without having their needs met. They sold their assets and all their possessions and gave them to the poor. And the provisions were distributed to those who had need. Just consider, in the sphere, just in the sphere of the numbers that we have here, let's say fifteen to 20,000 people, can you imagine that there's a lot of widows in that group? Can you imagine the responsibility? Uh, in this day, in particular, where there was no social security, the neediest people in society would have been... The widows. And I'm sure the apostles were actually responsible for the distribution, although they probably didn't actually give it all out to the people. Now, perhaps in this course of distribution, we're just surmising, right? The Hebrew widows were simply receiving favoritism. That's highly possible. Uh, Does that ever happen in the United States? Depending upon race, class, whoever you are. Uh, perhaps that's just what's going on. Another possibility is a communication problem. When you have that many people... Do we ever have communication problems here? (laughs) We sure didn't know about that, preacher. Even though we put it on the screen 20... Oh, you were not at church. Oh, now we're getting it, right? (laughs) But there's communication problems that go on in the church. As the church grew, it included more and more Greek-speaking people. And I'm sure... Communication was absolutely difficult. So, maybe in the course of things, it was much easier uh, to make the needs known uh, to the church leadership. And they did so. And the fact is, at the end of the day, the widows were being neglected. And as a result, grumbling, right? Verse 2, we see the apostles' solution to the problem. They call a multitude of disciples together. Bible commentators would say to us that there were perhaps 100 house churches at this given time. That's a lot, right? But that's how they had to meet, folks. They didn't have an air-conditioning room like you have at FBCO where you could come in and sit and soak, right? They had to meet wherever they could. And let's say if there were 100 house churches, it's possible that the representation here on that day was perhaps the leader's, of the house churches. That's an example. Maybe maybe I'm taking a stab at it, but I don't think 15 or 20,000 people showed up to decide how to solve this problem. I think you're dealing with house church leaders coming together uh, with compassion. Note that. They didn't say, well, they're grumbling. And guess what happened? Back in the book of Numbers, they murmured, and God opened up the earth and swallowed up all 150,000 of them. So you Baptists just need to be quiet and quit murmuring, Right? (laughs) By the way, smile. Smile and say murmur. Murmur. You know how bad you look. You know, do it again. Smile. Come on up in the balcony. This is show and tell. Murmur. Looks bad, don't it? I mean, it's hard to smile and say murmur because murmuring is not good. The Bible says in Philippians 2.6, do all things without murmuring and complaining. Boy, we're good at that, aren't we? If we don't have it our way, we just murmur and grumble. And it'd be easy for these guys to say, back in Numbers, God swallowed up a bunch of those Israelites who murmured. But that's not what they did. They took it seriously. They didn't say, just get over it. Don't be like the Israelites in the wilderness. They didn't do that. They listened. They were compassionate, considered about the problem. And they came up with an offered solution. It's not good and acceptable to God, right? Right? to leave the preaching of the Word to serve tables. Do you all see how this text is tracking with the importance of the Word? It's, it's not honoring to God for those who are preaching the Word to leave the preaching of the Word to serve tables. To leave the service of the Word. Giving you the Word and serving you the Word it's not good. It's not of God to do that. So the reference to the Word of God in ministry is in reference to... The teaching of the Word, making disciples, equipping them in the faith, preaching the gospel. We can include all those things in there. So this is placed in contrast to serving tables. You'd make a huge error this morning if you're thinking, well, uh, the preacher, uh, those who handle the Word, they're the ones up on the totem pole and we're just little menial servant, uh, serving table guys, right? You're making a huge mistake if you do that because this is not about some menial task that ends up getting relegated to a few men. This is not the way it's presented in the text. The context of serving tables is in this setting is a setting of a huge, massive administrative task when you took into account the oversight of money, goods, and the effective distribution of the livelihood of people who would die without it. I call that pretty serious. It's not a menial task, it was vital to the life of the church. So the apostles knew this, and they knew it required spiritual administrative abilities in order for the ministry to be effective. So the apostles are being honest at this point. They're being sensitive to their own limitations. There's no way we can do everything, right? When our number one call is to preach the Word. So we dare not neglect it by being consumed With so many other things that there's no way one person or five people or six or seven could actually do. It is chewing up the time when we need to be dedicated to preparing the word to be preached to the people. There's an example of this in the Old Testament. Do you remember Jethro? Oh, good old father-in-law Jethro to Moses. Moses was burning it at both ends, folks. He was wide open. He was leading two million Jews through the desert. So from sunup to sundown, what was Moses doing? He was judging all these cases. And Jethro comes up and says, man, this is pretty appalling. You need to shape up Moses and you need to get some help. And that's what happens in the Word of God with elders being chosen in Israel to help deal with all the disputes. Can you imagine two million people arguing and murmuring and complaining and bringing case after case to the leadership, that being Moses? Now, in our text, in verse 3, we have seven men who are approved. How did the selection process go? Y'all reckon they had a nominating committee? I doubt it, right? Uh, I don't think they had a nominating committee. You know, they knew the men among them who were godly. They knew the men who were approved. They knew the men who had a good testimony. And the Bible says they must be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Now, folks, if this was just some kind of low on the totem pole position... That anybody could fulfill, then I don't think they would have said much about being filled with the Spirit and full of wisdom. Do y'all? They needed to be marked by godliness and good character and wisdom. And wisdom means the ability to make good decisions in practical matters. Don't we need that in the church? Men who can make good, godly decisions in practical matters. So we find the spiritual and administrative gifts were the qualifications. Look, now note this, as you choose these men, it was going to engender confidence in their leadership, which would also engender confidence in the apostles' leadership over the entire church. Then they say, we will appoint them to the task. And although it was congregational involvement, it was the leadership of the church, the apostles, who said, once you tell us who these guys are... We're going to appoint them to the task. Y'all tracking? Some of this sounds a little different than what we're accustomed to with deacons in our day, right? Go ahead and say yes, because you'd be right. It's not what we're used to in most cases. So then they say they will appoint them. Their leadership was critical, and it was so vitally important. They worked together with the congregation. Amen? They worked together with the congregation. In verse 4, we see the apostles would devote themselves to doing something else, they would devote themselves to, say it, and what else? The preaching of the Word. Now get this straight. I'm not an apostle. There are no modern day apostles. Anybody seen Jesus resurrected from the grave? Alright, you're out. That, that's it. Uh, you have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. And Paul, of course, saw Jesus on the Damascus Road face-to-face, born out of due time. There are no modern-day apostles. However, the term apostello means to be sent forth or sent out. That's going to take on the responsibility of an elder in the New Testament. Who is an elder? Well, he's called a pastor-teacher. That'd be me, all right? That'd be others in our congregation who are gifted, uh, and we're going to deal with elders, too, when we get there, okay? Just Put the brakes on. We're going to deal with deacons first because that's what comes first in the text, right? In Acts 6. But so, the pastor teacher has that responsibility to preach and teach the Word. And it, when it says to devote, it means to stick to something with steadfast purpose. Now, there are, preachers who, there are pastors who do a lot of things. But if their number one call is not to stick steadfastly to the preaching of the Word, then they're not called to be a preacher. That's, that's just... That's pretty plain and simple. You can't be called as a pastor, teacher, if you don't preach the book. Right? To preach the Word. And that's exactly what it will be. Keep your nose to the grind and preach the Word. I think prayer here refers to a different kind of prayer. I think it's a ministerial prayer on behalf of the body of Christ. I think this is a unique ministerial prayer. And we do this as a staff. Every Monday morning, don't we? We come together And we pray for the body of Christ. We pray for this church. We pray for sick people in this church body. We pray that God will save souls and God will work in this body, that the Word of God would have success, that the Word of God would increase. We pray for people who are struggling, who are walking through incredible difficulties. And I think this is the kind of prayer that's mentioned in this text. It's a significant kind of prayer that's taken care of by those who are called to preach the Word. Then he says, to the service of the Word. And again, there's a play on words here. Serve tables versus serving the Word. And we will have the same. uh, We'll have those who serve tables. We have those who serve the Word. And I think the old traditional title for what I do is called a servant of the Word of the Lord. I like that. I'm a servant. I stand under the Word, not over. I am called to find out what the text means and give it to you. Because the Bible can never mean what it never meant. And we must find out what it meant with authorial intent and give it to the people as faithful as we can. So my field of labor is primarily in the Word of God. It's to study and to teach and to preach. You have this emphasis all the way through the Old and the New Testament. And there is a huge focus on the Word. We must focus on the spiritual food for God's people. The goal is to serve God's Word to you For the building up of the body of Christ. For this church to be all that God would have it to be. This is my calling. Week in and week out is to preach the word. Now in verses 5 and 6, we have the first diaconate. The word serve, again, here is the same word that we get our word deacon. Although the word deacon is not used in this text. Very same word. And the Bible says this idea pleased the church. Can y'all believe that? That the body of Christ, uh, when the Word going forward was was endangered, and they came forward with a solution, and then all of a sudden, the Word of God begins to increase again. What wonderful harmony between the apostles and the body. You know, that's the way it ought to be at this church, folks. There ought to be a wonderful harmony between the leadership of the church and the body of Christ. There ought to be this, this harmony, and so... They didn't want to neglect the preaching of the word, and the people understood this. How many of you noted that once these men were selected, that six out of the seven had Hellenistic names? How many of you noticed that? I see a couple of you shaking your head. That's not by accident. And even the seventh one, although he has a Greek name, he would have been a a Gentile proselyte. He was not a Hellenized Jew. Uh, So the fact of the matter is, this is what happens when they're chosen. Out of the seven, Luke only gives commentary to two of them. Did y'all notice that? Talks about Stephen being full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He stood out among the people. And I think he's going to highlight Stephen. Why? Because he's going to be the catalyst to take the gospel out of Jerusalem to the Gentiles. And folks, he is a deacon. Hello, Tokyo. Here's a man who was waiting on tables serving the people but preaching Jesus. Don't you like it when you got a preaching deacon? Yes. And that's what's going on. Stephen would do this with the cost of his life. And man, I hope you don't miss a single sermon when we start into Stephen's sermons leading up to his martyrdom. Man, that'll rattle your cage. That'll get your attention of what it means to be a follower of Christ and what Stephen thought was most important. And then Nicholas, a Gentile convert, is from Antioch. And this would be the place for the first Gentile church. I think that's the reason Luke is highlighting these. And then from the group of seven, the only other one who reappears is going to be Philip. And he will have a very significant role in preaching Jesus as well. So in verse 6, we see them set apart for ministry. This is their ordination. We see the laying on of hands. We see the symbolism of ordination for the task at hand. And all of that has to do with the fact that these men were approved by the church. They were leaders. They laid hands on them. No special power in the laying on of a hand. Just bringing together the understanding that these men had been chosen in the church to do a ministry task for God's glory. Set them apart. God did this. Called them out. Verse 7 is a wonderful statement. The word of God kept spreading. Continued to increase. The word can be translated again, multiplication. Multiplication. Great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. A bunch of preachers getting saved. No, technically, it's it's really those who were in the temple as traditional Jewish priests, and they're doing sacrifices, and they're taking care of priestly duties, but they don't know Jesus. And I want to remind you that the great high priest had come down from heaven, they just didn't recognize him. The ultimate sacrifice was not them putting another bull or a goat on the, on the altar that day, but the Lord Jesus Christ had already paid the price in full. He had already ascended to the Father and was seated in the heaven. Man, don't you know when those apostles went up to that temple to preach? They preached with fire and the holiness of God and the Word of God. And they said, why are you doing these kinds of sacrifices? The ulti- those sacrifices could never take away sin, but Jesus paid it all. At one moment in time and space, don't you know they preached with incredible fire and confidence in Jesus Christ proclaiming the gospel. And can you imagine those priests who served with an endless uh, task that could never atone for sin. Once they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and realized, man, I don't have to wear this robe anymore. I don't have to do these sacrifices anymore. I don't have to I don't have to go in once a year behind the veil and sprinkle the blood on the altar. Why? Because the blood has been applied, been covered in full. And so they preached Jesus. And when people are saved, the text says they're added to the church. Don't miss this. This was the direct result of the deacons freeing up the apostles to do what God had called them to do. And every church, every deacon body has a responsibility to free this pastor up to do exactly what God has called him to do. It has nothing to do with meeting behind doors and running the church. Has absolutely nothing to do with that. As a matter of fact, when we get it designed like it's supposed to be at the church, we'll probably meet four times a year. Once a quarter. How's the ministry going? Amen? What's happening in the ministry to please God has nothing to do with calling the shots. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, folks, in some churches... Instead of standing up and protecting the unity of the body, it is the deacons themselves who are causing the division. God forbid when you stand before Jesus at the judgment seat. Right? And here, these men are undergirding the protection of the Word. And look, the number one task of a deacon is to love the Word of God. Your whole life in calling at this church, if you're a deacon, is to stand under the Word and say, you know what, I want my pastor to preach the Word with fire. I want my pastor to stay in the Word of God. And your call is to do whatever it takes to protect the unity of this church. Anybody want to be a deacon this morning? Amen. I don't know. I want to remind you that three of the six men on my ordination... Licensed in my office were deacons. I am so thankful for those godly men that made an impact in my life. Saw the call in my life to preach the word. Signed on that ordination paper. Man, those are good guys. Greg Gess, Charles Watson, uh, my sister-in-law's dad, Mr. Creason. A couple of preachers. But man, believed in me poured into me. See, deacons have a huge responsibility. It's not just to come to church once a week or once a month and have a deacons meeting behind closed doors, straighten everybody out in the church. That's not what that's for. It's not to come together and give your opinion about how the pastor ought to lead the church. I don't mind if you do that. Don't mean I'm going to listen to you one bit. But the fact of the matter is you can do that if you want to. But that's not the number one call of the deacon. It's something so much bigger. And the church was growing. Isn't that awesome? If we do it God's way, preaching of the word, witnessing, harmony in the body, God steps in. And God grows the church. Folks, if anybody's ever saved, it's not because of our methodologies. It's because of the greatness of God that he touched a heart. So true priest, the true priest entered into this world, made atonement for his people, and then we see priests... Earthly priest getting saved. All right, how much time? Wow. Real quick. Summation, application. Now look, I'm going to preach on this three Sunday nights in a row, starting tonight, about how this fleshes out in deacon ministry at our church. So you need to be here. Here's the first thing. God can turn a crisis into a blessing. I'm going to go real quick. God uses leadership and understanding of people to turn a crisis into a blessing. This was an intense situation. It threatened the life of the church. But God, in the midst of the crisis, actually turns the church into a blessing. I'm so thankful for that. You know, there'll be times in the life of this church where we'll have crises. We'll have something come up that's going to be difficult. But you know what our God can do? Well, He can, it doesn't have to be the downfall of the church. It can be a term for the better, a blessing. So don't forget that. God can turn a crisis into a blessing. Number two, Meeting the needs of the body is a necessity. And it requires men with the spirit of wisdom. you got to meet the needs. The apostles didn't say, hey, we can't be a social organization and we don't care about needs. No, they met the needs. And that's what our church needs to do. We need to meet the needs. Deacons oversee ministries of mercy. They take care of physical needs of the body. Now, please hear me. These seven men were not restricted to administration. Because a couple of them are going to preach Jesus in an incredible way. But the fact is, the pattern was an administrative pattern to take care of tasks in the church that needed to be taken care of so that they could meet the needs of the people. Does that make sense? They saw a need and adapted. And it was good for the church. And it was good for the world. Because the gospel was increasing. Number three, the word of God in prayer must be a priority. Have I said that enough? I mean, yes. Is so important. The first time the devil attacked, it was through persecution. The second time, it was through hypocrisy. The third time, it was through distraction. Right? And if we can get the preacher distracted from preaching the Word, then and God's only promised to honor the Word, then the enemy has been successful. We can't give away. We can't get away from administrative tasks in the church. You just can't get away from it. However... Uh, We dare not neglect the preaching of the Word to take care of every administrative task. And let me just say at this church, I am so thankful for our staff. I think I got three or four administrative thinking people. And that's good for me because I don't necessarily think that way, right? And I'll be honest, that's not one of my strongest gifts. Now, I love people, and if you love people, you have to administrate. But my primary gift is the preaching of the Word. But we do have men at this church and our staff who are gifted with the gift of administration. Y'all seen one of them flying around the church, haven't you? Yeah, I don't have to tell you about him. And then, of course, Chris and Chuck, they all have great administrative minds. And uh, they also win win people to Jesus, right? And I'm so thankful for that. And then finally, the Word and the church will grow. I believe this. Ever so often, we have the mentality, Lord... I just love my little church. You ever been guilty of saying that? I've preached revivals before and came out the back after preaching on evangelism. And a man said, you know, preacher, I hear you, but I just like my little church. You know, what they're really saying is they love the fellowship. I want it to stay small so that I have fellowship. Folks, I want to remind you that's what Sunday school's for. And if you're not in Sunday school, you need to be in Sunday school. Right? You need to be there. But for us to have the mentality that we want to say small, stay small means that we don't want to win anybody to Christ. And that's not good, right? What we want God to do is, is draw people into Himself the correct way. We're not doing easy believism, sign a card. We're saying, God, you save people. Do it through the preaching of the Word. Do it through evangelism and witnessing. But the text says they were added to the church. And we ought to be happy when somebody gets saved. We ought to be happy When people come to this church. I don't. I like. I'm okay with members of other churches coming here. As long as they're not coming to cause problems. They're coming because they love Christ. And love the preaching of the word. That's fine. But folks. That's not our number one target. Our number one target. Are the people that you work with every day. That don't know Jesus. Our number one target. Is the community around here. Who needs to know Christ. I'm not after the congregations. I'm after the crowd. Right. We're after people who don't know Christ. And so we should take great pains so that the Word of God is propagated in our community. That we preach Jesus, and we're faithful to it. We want them added to God's church. We want them eating up the Word with zeal. Right? Alright. Revelation 7, 9-10 through 10 tells us that there is an innumerable company in heaven that no man could ever number. Folks, if that's the case, we want to see a lot of folks come to Jesus, don't we? And a number innumerable amount of people standing before the throne in, Re, in Revelation 7. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part. We can't save them. God does that. But, boy, we want to have a hand in it, right? Seeing them come to faith in Christ. Well, I'm done. All right? God, you're good to us. And, Father, I thank you for your word. And, Lord, Father, help us, Lord, to think about what we've heard. Uh, Lord... We don't want any hypocrisy whatsoever. Lord, we don't want a title. Lord, we we want to serve you. And Father, I pray for our church family. This is a critical time even in the life of our church because I just see so clearly, and the Bible presents it so clearly, how much we need servants in the church, deacons, who support the preaching of the Word, who protect the unity of the church. Lord, the division in the body... Is what caused them to choose the deacons in the, in the first place so that they could be shock absorbers in the life of the church. Not to run toward division and cause division, but to protect the unity of the body of Christ so that the word can be preached, so that souls will be saved. God help our church to do that. Lord, if there's an individual in this church body or in this building present today that's lost in their sins, Lord, we're reminded that the priests were saved that day, some of them. They were doing all the right things. They thought they were very religious, but they were lost. There are people, I'm sure, seated, seated here today who are very religious, but they're lost. Lord, your word says in 1 Corinthians 15, I give to you of first importance that Jesus Christ was crucified according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to the Scriptures. Lord, it's the good old gospel message of Jesus Christ. We can't be saved unless we recognize and realize that we're first sinners and that we deserve judgment. But Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you paid the debt that we couldn't pay. That you became sin for us. Taking our place on Calvary. Bearing our penalty and our debt. So that we could receive your righteousness. Father, if there's a lost person here, I pray that you would prick their heart. Take the scales from their eyes, the callousness from their hearts. Let them see you for who you are. And Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.